Welcome to an American Seal. This is uh, Dr. Mike Steele, your host. With me always is uh, Clayton. Clayton, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dr. Steele. How's it going? It's going fantastic. And we have a special guest on American Steel today. It's uh, Phil Schwenk. Phil is the Vice President of School for America, uh, Classical Education. School Vice President of American Classical Education. Yep. Is that correct? Vice President of Schools. Vice American President of Classical Education. Or cool. ACE, for sure. Yeah, thank you for being here, yep. Phil. Um, and... Appreciate you coming on. I know you've been very busy today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yes, I've been running all over Tennessee, literally. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I listened yeah. to your uh, your radio show this morning. You did a great job. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, so, uh, Phil, you uh, are proposing, or your company, which company is that now? This is the School for American Classical Education, right? Yes, that's the name you're, of our organization. Okay, and you're proposing uh, to plant a charter school here in Murray County. Is that correct? Yeah, specifically a classical public charter school. Okay, tell me about the process. I know you've kind of been talking about that all day, but uh, for my listeners, tell us about the process that that starts with. Sure. Well, each state, including Tennessee, usually has a window where charter schools can apply to a local district to start a charter. So what we've done, and actually the due date was yesterday, uh, we were to give an application uh, that's a preordained template that you have to fill out and ends up being about 500 pages that you give to the district. And then it gives the district about two months to look over that application. And there's a rubric that's been provided. Uh, there'll be some hearings down the road where we have to talk through and answer questions regarding it. Uh, there'll be like a public hearing. Uh, and then your school board will vote on if they think that this charter school should start here. Uh, if they vote yes, we would end up having this school hopefully starting in the fall of 2024. And what does that look like if they vote yes? What are like the steps that the community can start to see happen is that the vote going to be after the community discussion and then they're going to vote or are they going to vote and then you're going to be able to approach the community about? Well, so there's already been some kind of legwork as far as contacting the community. So like if you look at the application, for example, we have close to 100 letters in there from community members here in Murray County showing support for this school. Uh, some of those members and additional members could be part of the public hearing if they so choose where they would actually talk in, in support of such a school. Um, so they've already started at some level. Obviously, if this becomes a real thing, it actually changes the conversation quite a bit because you start actually having families seeing it as a real thing and perhaps they want to participate in that. Uh, really, just a lot of the heavy lifting starts once you get a yes because, I mean, we're going to have to secure a facility. You have to start you know, getting teachers and staff. You know, Obviously, you continue to market because uh, we're going to want about 300 to 340 students to start the school, K-5. Um, so, yeah, just it becomes, it's like, it really, in many ways, it's like starting a business. I mean, it, you set up everything, all the kind of legal structures and all the personnel. Um, so, but as far as communities getting connected, uh, we have ongoing, we'll have like info sessions where parents can come and ask questions. Uh, that's really the best way to do it. Uh, we tend to just set up places where anybody from various parts of the community can come in and ask me questions about what the school would be, you know, what it looks like for kids and that kind of thing. Yeah, if the approval is given, will you hope or plan to start opening your doors by next August? August of 24. August of 24. Yeah, so we'd have about just over a year to get it all set up. And, uh, Phil, who is the governing body for this school? If it's planted here, and and, uh, we talked a little bit off air that there's a possibility that you would be the principal, and you've got vast experience in that arena. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But who's the governing body for this school? So Tennessee for ACE has a specific board of members. So it's a local board. Uh, We are currently applying to five separate 
counties for this school. So there's members from each. So Murray County has a board member that's from here. Uh, there's four others, and then there's two plus that that are not specific to a county. And they are the board that would be specific to my school and be looking at you know, our success or our, our data, our metrics, those types of things. And then ACE has its own uh, board as well. And so, uh, and that board is all over the country. But uh, so there's really two levels. The board that I would be accountable to is a local Tennessee board. Be a local Tennessee board. So parents would also have access to that if, Absolutely. There was a, if they had concerns about once the school was planted. And they, they would have access to that board as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of you, you see it in the application, you see it obviously in all of our like, kind of bylaws and handbooks. Uh, there's a whole process by which if, you know, you're not getting serviced at the local level, that you can make your way into a, a supervising entity that you could voice your concerns. I, I want to ask you about this real quick because uh, I picked up on it. You, you mentioned a couple of times free thinkers. Yes. Free thinkers. Absolutely. Tell me about that. Well, it's fun. it's fundamental not just to this work in these classical schools, but that's what I do. I was a history teacher for years, and so and I, I taught in L.A. and I've taught all over the country. Um, I'm real big on teaching kids uh, the idea of them not only we use the words like critical thinking or problem solving, but this idea that uh, thinking there's a freedom in it, uh, not only in your ability to think internally, but how you act uh, in a free way as a free person. Um, so we're real big on, obviously, as educators, and you would understand this, um, giving kids access to literacy isn't just about, hey, I get a great reading score in the third grade and I can show that I can do that. It's that when people are able to read, they're able to access information at levels that allows them to reason more thoroughly. And as, you, as people become able to reason more thoroughly, they become freer in their ability to kind of consider things and think about things and make decisions. So at the basis of critical or of classical education is this idea uh, that there's this participant in a conversation that's gone on for thousands of years trying to define what freedom is and what liberty is and what it means to be a free thinker in a free society and to be part of a larger either society, nation, concept of some kind. Uh, for kids to best do that, uh, we would say that they need to understand what that conversation is. And to understand that conversation, a lot of it in our tradition here in the United States is through our literature. We can read books. We can read thinkers, uh, people that I call the giants. Uh, anybody who knows academics knows we have giants that go back thousands of years. And all we're doing is we're trying to get kids to be a participant in that conversation, understanding that they're part of that conversation and an important part of that conversation. When a child starts to understand that, it allows them to come up with thoughts and opinions that are theirs and they're uniquely theirs and they understand how to found it based on information that they've either read or considered or their experiences, those types of things. And so one of the things, especially in the climate today that I constantly have to focus on this free thinking part is a lot of people, especially since the classical school, are trying to suggest that we're trying to kind of counter indoctrinate. And that's false. That's not what we're trying to do. In fact, I would suggest that if you allow people to think freely, that's part of what's great about the American experiment, is that a child or an adult that frees think, thinks freely will move in different directions. Some might move a little bit to the left. Some might move a little bit to the right. And I think part of what makes the American concept genius is it allows for that stretch. And so our hope is to allow kids to be able to be part of that conversation, whatever that, that conclusion may be, allowing them to kind of have that overall thought. But be able to found it, not just in reason, uh, but in goodness. It's really both. We don't only just want reasonable people, we want good people. Well, you've, you've been, uh, you've experienced public schools, charter schools, you've have, you have a very eclectic background. Sure. What was the moment for you that you said, uh, and we need charter, we need uh, school choice, or we need charter schools to be uh, 
option for our parents? What was that moment for you? Um, and it's interesting. It's a great question because it's kind of molded over time. So I was about six years into teaching as I was a Los Angeles Unified School District teacher at a high school. I was a history teacher, uh, actually in a humanities magnet. So it was, it was actually, I loved it. It was some of the most fun I've had in my uh, teaching career. Um, but at that time, I started getting a conversation with a friend of mine about this idea of starting charter schools. And my original intention you know, kind of that idealistic, you know, 20-some-year-old that gets excited about why we do education, is that it was obvious to me that there's things that we could do better in the world of education. And my thought was by experimenting in different things or different arenas, we could come up with good ideas and hopefully as a group of educators start to use the best of these ideas and the benefit of our kids. One of my frustrations over time has been that that doesn't always happen. There isn't necessarily that ongoing conversation. In fact, in much of the country, we've, we've created this kind of contentious situation between like charters and larger districts and those types of things. When in my mind, we should have a common desire to educate our kids. Uh, and frankly, what I'm watching across the country is there's a lot of kids that are not getting the services as far as their education that they should. And so for me, the original intention of charter schools was, okay, let's create a market where we can share ideas and be better at what we do. Um, you know, obviously, as you get a little bit farther than this, you realize that politics become involved in this and all these things that, for me, don't necessarily benefit kids. They're more about adults than children. Um, my hope is, is in charter schools, we come up with ideas. And, like, so I've been talking to, like, the people here at Murray. It's not, this isn't me versus or us versus your district. I want to work with the district, have another option for parents here and kids, uh, and let's do this together and share kind of our concepts and ideas. I mean, the way that public charters are set up, our data is your data. So, I mean, basically any data that we, uh, you know, our reading levels, our numeracy levels, all that stuff becomes part of the dialogue. So my original intention was just to do that. And my last gig in uh, L.A. was part of, you may have heard of Green Dot Public Schools. I've heard they've started to talk here in Tennessee. But it's a CMO that their original intention was to start charter schools next to the lowest performing schools in L.A. to create a market where hopefully that that could you know, the idea was if they, if they could create a market where the other school starts doing better, then the school would actually go away because the, the, the community school would be able to serve in that way. Um, and that was really intriguing to me. So it's, to this day, you can go to L.A. and you'll see, like, Green Dot schools next to some of the hardest schools. So the, the school that I was part of was the Lock High School Transformation. which So you guys are new. And I, uh, I've been in, was in Nashville for 12 years, the same high school in Nashville for 12 years. And just That's awesome. Sure. I appreciate that. It was um, when I first got there, they told me it was a considered the worst high school in Tennessee. Huh. Um, and that was actually from the commissioner of education at the time. So sure. we saw, we've seen a lot of charter schools pop up around that school, but not, no high schools. Cause we started as we showed progress, uh -huh. uh, charter schools kind of backed off cause they knew that, that people wanted to go to that high school, but they were popping up everywhere around us. Sure. So, I mean, I'm sure you can understand there's a little apprehension. I've got scenarios that I could give you, for instance, uh, this charter school down the street, if, if they had a high schooler who wasn't on track to graduate, somehow that kid would get put out of that school at the end mm -hmm. so it wouldn't impact their graduation rates. How do you tell our listeners that that's not your vision at all? Because y'all's graduation rate, I think you said, is just over 90 percentile. Yes. And so how do uh, – well, I'll tell you what. Assure me, assure me that that sure. is not something that would be a strategic move for your charter school is to kind of 
pad the numbers. Well, I can talk about our schools and I can talk about any charter school I've ever been in. I mean, what you're suggesting to me is highly unethical. Uh, so I start with that. I mean, there's legal issues that we could start talking about. But for me, that that's wrong. Like why you would do that, I don't understand. Because what you're basically saying is you, you're admitting that you failed that child and you're not willing to be held accountable to the fact you've done that. Correct. So I can tell you straight out, there's no way that we would do that. Um, our intention, I mean, of course, our goal as any educators, I want 100% of these kids to graduate. And so my, my goal is to do that. Not 100% that make me look good, 100% of them <laughs> having done that and done. So that gets into what I was just talking about earlier. A lot of the conversation nowadays is adult-centric, meaning I, I manipulate numbers to make me look good. That's totally contrary to what I think anyway. So, I mean, I think I said this even in our last meeting that we had uh, a couple weeks ago on the radio. Uh, I could care less if you forget who I am. I'm not here for me. I, I, I'm a servant. So I come here to, to work with kids. And so I want true numbers. I mean, how do I get better? I mean, think about the teaching level. If I'm not getting true data from my students and I don't know how they're doing, how do I really address their need? The schools are the same types of systems. If I'm not getting real numbers and I think that I'm doing 100 percent graduation rate or 90 some percent, but that's because I'm you know, pushing off groups, then those aren't real numbers. And it's not really telling us how good we're doing or how well we're doing. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I can assure you it's not fundamentally what we do. And frankly, I've never done, seen that in any of the classical schools I've been in. Like I've, I mean, not classical, charter schools. I've never seen that done, but I've heard of that being done. Uh, yeah. I can tell you on both ends, we don't do that. We don't glean at the front end. Meaning any kid that comes in and signs up can come to our school, and we're not definitely pushing out kids. In fact, to be totally frank on that, one of the things about me, especially in urban settings, I tend to hold on to kids, and that, that, that a lot of people struggle with that. I try to get to a kid. If there's a kid that needs to be moved to maybe a better option or something like that, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. <laughs> I mean, I've done all the things that I could do trying to address this, this child's need. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I can very much assure you that the data is real data. Um, we're not trying to glean and, uh, you know, push the numbers up at all. One of the advantages of being able to start the school here, if we're under your LEA, is that the LEA would be entirely in our business. I mean, they, in the sense of they could, um, you, know, you know, who our populations are, they're seeing our, seeing our test scores, they can look at our financials, they can do those things. In fact, it's one of the things that I suggest why it would be a, it's better to be okayed locally, because then you can literally walk around the building. Like, people from here can come and look at our work, see what we're doing, uh, those types of things. So that would be my challenge. Um, yeah. And you mentioned this morning on your interview this morning, and I, I, I also I really appreciate your transparency. I think it's fantastic. You mentioned this morning that you really don't have any – you have a – you don't really have a reporting, something that you report to that is going to be able to tell you what to do in that school, right? No, as a head of that school, that school is mine. Of course, I'm accountable to the board. Right. I can't do anything I want. But, yeah, no, there's there's a significant amount of flexibility that I have in a charter school that you don't often have in a larger district school. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, uh, and this has been pretty big news, and I was um, doing my research. Uh, Mr. Uh, when Mr. Arn and Governor Lee mm -hmm. did a presentation together, there yes. was some controversial statements that were made. Yes. With our teacher shortage, though, the way it is, as you know, if you're if you have a great atmosphere and your leadership is pretty solid and teacher recruitment becomes uh, easier, yeah. Te teachers want to work in that environment. But with with your school being aligned to Mr. Arns and Mr. Arns comments, do you find do you think it's going to be difficult to recruit teachers who may feel like you're aligned with that way of thinking? I, my honest answer, just but it's without explanation, is no. 
Okay. But I understand what your question is. So there, there's two parts to this. Anybody who gets to know me at the ground level, not just something that was you know, taken, frankly, in my mind, kind of out of context, one statement, and it wasn't said well. Totally agree with that. But the larger conversation was trying to advocate that we need better teachers in front of kids, which I generally agree with that, that concept. The idea that the stronger the teachers we can get in front of kids, kids deserve excellent teachers. I, I think we can agree on that. Um, so for me... Um, Anybody who gets to kind of know me and what this school is wouldn't get caught up in that piece. I, I think that the number one resource in a school are the teachers. Outside, the, the only reason why a school exists is because there's kids in it. And the number one person that you put in front of a child is a teacher. So my job is to support teachers. I'm a servant of the teachers who are servants of kids. So I think anybody who kind of gets to understand what our concept is and what we're trying to do would be able to distance themselves uh, from really a statement that was made by a college president that has no specific, you know, I, I started a BCSI school in Ohio, and I've never had Larry Arn or any of his office ask me to do this or do that. I mean, it's really very much an independent charter. So we value teachers quite a bit, um, and that's my promise to parents is I'm going to put a learned, compassionate adult in front of your child, and I promise that that person would be there. Um, to give you an idea, the original teachers that start these schools, um, they're usually uh, from either the private school sector the homeschooling sector, or retired teachers. Um, and frankly, I think most of those groups, when you start talking about the shortage, it makes you look at the pool differently. Um, so the only place that I was having pool issues in Ohio were really around substitute teachers. It was really hard to get a large sub-pool. Uh, our attendance rates were well over 96%, so it wasn't a huge issue. Um, but So that's why I say no, not in a kind of a flippant way. I just think that there's a lot of teachers that are good teachers out there that are kind of sitting on the sidelines, kind of wanting to participate in a way that they would like to participate. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I wasn't saying that your your feeling was aligned with those statements. It just seems like someone in that kind of position that's in a presentation with the governor of any state would be more polished and know how to make statements uh, to say perhaps – we don't have a lot of uh, folks that are in, taking education courses in order to be educators or something like that, because he also made a kind of a well, I was I was first I was really shocked. But I was, then I started getting more puzzled. He also made a statement about diverse applicants. And I don't I didn't really care for that statement either. So my first thought I was as I was talking to Clayton off off uh, off air earlier was that you would think somebody in that uh, in that position of of authority and influence would be a lot more polished when he shares his thoughts. Well, there, there's two parts. It did make my life, my work harder. Okay. I, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> and I, I, would, I would probably uh, say it differently. Not pro I would say it differently. Uh, I, I think the only thing I put up there, and I think it's important. I, I, I know Larry at a pretty good level, and I know that his heart's in the right place. But a lack of polishing... Um, I understand that. Piece. Yeah. Well, um, also when you're defensive and you're kind of uh, you kind of seem agitated, sure. it seems like uh, anytime you're defensive and you're agitated, it seems like uh, you're you're trying to mask something. And in the in the, oh, in the sure. 20 minutes you and I've spent together, I don't get that feeling from you at all. Yeah. I can see you in that in that venue and making an entirely different saying some of the same kind of concepts, but entirely different way. They didn't offend so many people. I agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. OK. Yeah. Um, why, why are why are charter schools necessary or what are public schools missing or what are public schools uh, doing that uh, that make us need charter schools? Well, I think the way to, I, I guess there's several ways to look at that. Uh, 
I, I'm more of a free market guy is the best way to put that, is the idea that in America we believe that there should be options and choices. And one of the areas that we've struggled with that uh, oftentimes is in the realm of public education. One of the things that we know as educators is different kids need different things, different environments, different curriculums. Different, I mean, kids learn a bunch of different ways. I mean, even when you get into stuff like you know special ed law and like a student with an IEP, an IEP is always just meant to me, I learn differently. That's all it says. It says I just... I learn differently. And I think that's true of any child. That's why we have the difference between like an IEP and an ILP. Um, you know, so um, I think what a charter school offers is options for parents to say, I think this way is probably the best way for my child to learn. Um, and the nice thing about having that choice is it's not a forced situation. So one of the areas that our country has struggled is you have a lot of families that end up having to be at a school that may not be the best school for their their child, and there's limited if or no choices sometimes. And so that's where the, I think that's where the demand came. Because charter schools really sprung out of local communities. It's part of what I like the most about charter schools is how organic it is. It's, it's ground-level stuff. It's a group of parents saying, I think it would be really you know, awesome if we did this. And I've been in every type of, I mean, I've been in college prep, career tech ed, dropout recovery. I mean, I've been in, it's not just about classical. It's just that parents will say, I think my child will do you know, better with this. So like even this morning, it came up this idea of having, uh, you know, schools that are focused on a specific type of training, a task. I don't think the idea of having a child learn how to become a, you know, CNC machinist is counter to classical education. In fact, I think they could coexist. And in a larger district, that's where that conversation becomes relevant, because perhaps I'm educating this child classically, and so they become highly literate and well-read. But maybe, you know, in the evening or in the morning, they're going to the school down the street where they teach them how to be a machinist. I mean, it, there's nothing wrong in that kind of space. And so I think that environment answers your question. I think it's just as Americans, we have so many other types of options in almost anything that we do that I would suggest that schools become better when you understand the diversity of children and how they learn and what they're interested in. Well, thank you. Um, we're talking with Mr. Phil Schwenk on American Steel. We'll be right back after uh, this on WKLM 101.7 FM. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or parksmotorsales.com. Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Have you been hauling your own garbage to the convenience center? Are you tired of doing it? Does your work schedule keep you from hauling it off regularly? Is your teenage son not taking it off like he promised when he got his driver's license? Do you have something better to do on Saturday? If any of these questions strike home to you, call the Garbage Man at 931-540-0919 and your problem will be solved. 
Do you suffer from knee pain? Is it painful to walk or perform your day-to-day activities? If so, we have great news at the Dr. Gill Center. We can relieve your knee pain fast and easy with no downtime and no surgery. The FDA has approved a new non-surgical treatment for knee pain, and it's covered by most major insurance, including Medicare. This treatment has helped millions of people across the nation. Call today to see if you qualify for a free consultation and get back to a pain-free life. 615-551-9224. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown columbia securities and investment advisory services offered through nbc securities incorporated member finra and sipc each week on history's hook we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history i'm your host tom price this is not your high school history class we're going to make history fun and compelling we're going to get you hooked History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time. Welcome back to American Steel. We're still here with Clayton and uh, Mr. Phil Schwank, the vice president of the American School Classical Schools. Uh, Mr. Swank, that first segment was fantastic. I appreciate your transparency. And uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, uh, you mentioned earlier that the funding was from private donors. Are those donors ever going to be made public record, or are they always going to remain private? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know that I can address that. I'm not sure. That would be a Joel question or a CEO. I'm not sure how that's set up. Uh, but I can say that we have very uh, generous donors. Um, uh, and it's, it's it's really, there's. I think the donors that I'm aware of are most interested in not just charter schools, specifically classical charter schools. Um, I would assume at some point there's going to be you know, some transparency as far as who those. I mean, I'm not sure if it's. I don't even know how that set setup is. That would be a jewel piece. Over the uh, around the country, what is the is the average teacher salary above the uh, community that that school particularly is planted in? Of charter schools? Yes, sir. No, I would say generally charter schools pay less, uh, especially as the teacher gets older. So one of the things, I'm, I'm very upfront about that. I think that charter schools can compete, especially startup charters. I'm not talking about a school that's been around for decades. Right. Uh, a startup charter can compete with younger teachers' salaries. Like if I've taught one, two, three, four, five years. But when you start getting a teacher that's taught for 25 years, it's very hard for charter schools to compete on that wage. So what you're really competing over is like vision. There might be teachers that are willing to give up some of that compensation for the type of education you're doing, and I've seen that. Uh, But it's almost impossible for most charter schools to start with a wage that's exactly the same as the competing district. Yeah. You mentioned this morning about co-oping with local schools. Uh, Do do charter schools typically just co-op with one school for any programs? And what programs will this particular charter school offer where they won't have to co-op? Well, again, each school is different because they're community schools. And a lot of it grows out of what's naturally happening on that campus. Um, You know, and one of the reasons, and I said that earlier, as far as I I really want to have a relationship with the district because it allows us to co-op more readily and have conversations about how to use resources to benefit kids. Um, But the example I always give, like I was a high school basketball coach for years in L.A., 
I love basketball. I mean, if, if uh, I could watch 60-plus games during March Madness, believe me, I would just be sitting around watching 60-some games. Um, but if I'm in a community where the kids and the parents don't care about basketball, we're not going to do basketball. So that's where co-oping has to happen, meaning that I might have a child in my school that wants to play basketball, but we don't have enough demand to have a basketball team. So they would end up playing for their local school. Um, and I would suggest that when you start moving into clubs and skill sets and stuff like that, that's why a collection is of benefit. Meaning we were talking a little bit about career tech ed, for example. Um, you know, I, we may not have a school on, you know, that, on car engines or diesel engines, Okay, but there might be a school around here or uh, some institution that could uh, benefit a child. Uh, to me, I think sharing that conversation over a child is what benefits a child. Um, so, yeah, it's really hard to answer, especially when the school hasn't formed and you don't know the families that are most interested in what they're interested in. Because um, there's some communities, for example, that charter schools uh, pop up into they have like other schools that are dominant, like football, for example. They may never want to have a football team at that school because all the kids want to play at that football team in the local community. Right. So they specialize in something different. Um, I do not think that classical education is inconsistent with things like career tech ed, for example. It was one of my early arguments having worked in career tech ed schools. The idea that somebody wants to be classically trained but also know how to be part of the building construction industry? Why not? I mean, I think they, they very much coexist. What have you learned about uh, Murray County's career and technical education programs? It's pretty robust around here. I, I, I don't know tons about the local one. I mean, I'm just starting to get to know the schools around here. Uh, my hope would be to be able to be in conversation with all this. Why not? I mean, I literally, I, that's why I continue to stress this isn't meant to be contentious. I mean, we just have a model that's strong. It's classical education. It doesn't have to be instead of everything else. It's why can't we start, you know, when a parent says, I want my child educated this way, they get educated that way, but they could still perhaps take a course or some courses at a career tech ed school, especially if it's robust. It's one of the areas that this country is really struggling. I think it's going to be important as we progress through this process that uh, when people start seeing that uh, the money is not coming out of our public schools and going into this charter schools, mm -hmm. uh, we got to, we just have to, we would have to make sure we do a good job of making sure that we are very transparent about that as well. Totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because I think most people are feeling kind of that way. And I think in some cases that has happened to where uh, public funds have gone into charter schools that, that don't produce any better results than their local school, yet they're still getting funding and somehow the other public schools are missing funding. So I think in this process, having talked talk to you, I think you'd be speaking, uh, you know, purposeful and transparent about how that works and, and that this is not going to deplete any of the public schools from any of their funding would be crucial. No, well, I whole, totally agree. I think the, the area that's easiest to start in that conversation is that the facility itself is built and secured by us. I mean, it's millions of dollars that the district is saving. So, I mean, even if you start there, yeah. when you start talking about, like, money. Um, but the other part of that is you, you said something that I, I say out loud over and over and over and over again. If we're not doing what we said we're going to do, the nice thing about being in your district is you can pull the card. And I would suggest that you do. I mean, I, I, I say this over and over and over again. If we're coming in saying we have a type of education that's going to benefit some kids, and because those kids say they're going to benefit from this, their scores go up, for example, on, like, the state tests, then great. If we're not doing that, if they're staying the same or going down, I mean, what's our purpose? Like, we've totally just kind of alienated what we promised to do in the first place. Uh, and to me, you can't do that, really, 
I mean, you could philosophically, but we don't pull the cards of major districts because, you know, their, their kids aren't doing well. A charter school, you can do that. That's that flexibility. Um, so it can benefit you if we're actually doing well. This, the district as a whole looks better. And you can also like, cut us out if we're not doing that. Phil, you had mentioned earlier that uh, there's you're being the vice president. There's a good chance uh, that you'd be the principal of this school yes. if it were approved. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. And so you've moved around a lot. So what mm-hmm. would you say to parents and students? Are, are you going to stay a while or are you going to go plan <laughs> another school somewhere else? Sure. Well, and that's, that's a reasonable question. So I'm going I'm to answer that first by saying, and this is just me and my faith, I go where God wants me to be. So I'm going to start with that. Okay. So, you know, if God wants to put me someplace else, that, that's how it works. I, I don't plan on this. It, it's been kind of funny, and I'm very upfront about this. For some reason, in the zeros in my life, I've been someplace else. So uh, when I was born, I was born in Colorado, zero. I grew up in New Mexico, 10. Went to college in Philly, 20. Uh, went to California, 30. Moved to Ohio, 40. I just turned 50 this last year. Hey, I'm coming to Tennessee. So I, you know, so 10 years from now, maybe at 60, I'm going someplace else. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I really want the schools here to thrive. Um, I, I really want them to do well. Um, so I, I think it's a reasonable question. Um, I'm more than willing, especially as we get older. To I mean, when you said you were, you know, in Nashville for 12 years, I was envious because most of us as principals never get to <laughs> be in the, and mo- much of the, the stats demonstrate that if you really want to create significant change in a school, you have to allow the administrators to be there for a substantial amount of time. Uh, in fact, I remember talking in Cleveland to some, they were saying as much as what, nine to 13 years, like a substantial chunk of time if you really want to create change. So no, I mean, it, it, moving around is not fun. So if I decided to come to Murray County, I would hope to be here. I mean, I'm at least a decade, even with what I just said. So I'm not I'm not in a rush to, to go anywhere. Okay. Uh, well, a decade would give you a chance to get it uh, from K to 12. Yes. And get through uh, several graduating classes. And that would be ideal. If I could watch a fifth grader graduate. Yeah. Because that, that's been one of my new things is watching, because most of mine has been 9 to 12. Now, you mentioned so, you love basketball. Absolutely. And I like basketball, but I'm not, I'm, I, get, I don't guess I would consider myself a basketball guy. But have you ever won the March Madness bracket? Oh, I actually often do. So oh, yeah. you if you'd like, if you'd like, no, I'm about 50, 50. I do. All right. I was going to say I've won before. I didn't. And so now you just blew that out of the water. Because, You're talking about like a local bracket, like uh, with yeah, your teachers bracket. and stuff like that? One, one. Yeah. I got oh, no, I've, I've actually, uh, it's kind of funny. I'm about a 50, 50. Okay. So we'll have to do a bracket. We got to have to talk. Clayton, have you ever won? Once or twice. That, that's been about it. Okay. I like doing the Super Bowl pool where you pick the score, the last digit on the score for the squares. Yeah. The square. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. my yeah. kind of my favorite thing. Yeah. So, uh, hey, Phil, tell me a little bit about, we talked a little bit off air. Um, this is a very diverse community. Yep. Uh, you're probably familiar with the research. You know that young men of color that don't graduate from high school sure. have a 70 percent chance of having interaction or going to jail or interaction, negative interaction with the criminal justice system. Sure. Uh, how do you approach that when you when you start hiring your staff and you start developing your vision and your mission statement? How do you approach those kind of numbers and start talking to your staff about the complexities of poverty and those kind of how they impact learning and those kind of things. I'm, I'm very interested to hear your, your vision on that. Okay. Um, so there's, uh, I guess I should probably give some of my history. I mean, most of my early education as an educator was in LA. So if you ever, I mean, that's basically all black and brown, uh, with some others sprinkled in, <laughs> right. uh, you know, so I've been at schools that were all black or all Latino or, all, you know, it's, uh, 
you know, so the populations you're talking about, in that, in that space, you also get into immigration issues, you know, people from all over the world coming in, ELL students, those types of things. So I've been around that same thing in Cleveland. I've really, Cleveland was the first place coming from the West that I actually got to be the first school I started was, you know, ahead of Max Hayes was about a third, a third, a third black, white, brown. So it was my seeing a larger white poor population in that space as well. Um, so I, I think to answer that question, um, I think it's really important that teachers care deeply about their students. And I know I keep going to that, but I think one of the areas that we're failing is keeping adults in front of kids that care about them. Because when you care about a child, you're going to try to understand that child where he or she is. And kids kind of have a bunch of different stories, and you know they come from pretty, I mean... Most of the stories, if you, especially if you've been in urban settings, it's really hard to know and calculate all the different types of narratives you're going to bump into. You know, one of the ones I, I think we were actually talking about this earlier. I mean, I, when I was in L.A., I had a child who watched his dad, you know, beheaded. I mean, if you know anything about, like, the violence of MS-13 and groups like that, I mean, you don't prepare for that, like, in... No. <laughs> you know, it's like when your child gets beheaded, you know. So you have to start with a, a group of adults that care deeply about kids. So they care about connecting to them where they are. Now, the other piece that I've always been interested in, this actually starts in my undergrad, is I like the conflict that exists between social classes. So when I was in West Philly, which is where University of Pennsylvania is, most of the kids that go to Penn are middle class plus. Um, I was part of two major tutoring projects in West Philly, which is a low-income neighborhood. And one of the first things I started to notice was what I call code exchange. There was different languages being spoken. Uh, and they have a lot of has to do with social classes, not just like racial things. It's like if I grew up middle class or lower class or upper class, the exchange was different. So one of the things that I constantly talk to teachers about, there's, there's a couple pieces. One, be authentically you. Kids know when you're messing around and you're not being yourself. But two, recognize that there's a, this is a dual education. You're learning as well. So you have to understand what this child needs and is saying that they need. And when you, especially when you get into urban settings, and you know this, for many kids, the school is actually one of their safer places. Uh, they're able to be more authentically themselves oftentimes, and they may be able to be in their own house. Like, cause, well, they can so, eat without reservation. They can at least uh, take a break without worrying about violence. And they, uh, yes. it's probably the safest environment they've been in all day. Well, and they can speak freely. They know their ki- their their teacher's not going to you know smack them or anything like that. They can, right. you know, which is one of the things that you have to train teachers to understand. That means they might actually be a little bit more crass. They might say things that they're not. So this gives us a great opportunity to talk about environments and when, because that's why I call it co-changing. L.A. was a perfect area for that, meaning that there are kids that if they didn't act a certain way on their way home, they may not even get home. I mean, when you have kids that live 10 minutes down the road, but they're going 45 minutes to get home because they can't go through a certain neighborhood and they have to act a certain way to get there, that's a co-change. It's almost, to me, it's being multilingual. And the teacher has to recognize that. So part of our job as a teacher is to get a student to recognize different environments necessitate different conversation and different verbiage. And so you have to train teachers to recognize that. So uh, there's so many things to me to teach a child, and it becomes unique to every situation because it depends on who you're serving. I mean, it's different kids. It could be in the same school in different classes. I mean, you you constantly have to kind of address. But I think it's easiest to do that from the beginning of what I just said. If I can get groups of adults that care about kids, we can have conversations about those in real time. So, for example, in my school, we have PD literally weekly. We have meetings every week. And part of that conversation is what I call student talk. 
So we're talking about children, real data, real kids. And so if you have a teacher that's struggling with a certain child, they're not speaking the same language, and that could be for a whole bunch of different reasons, that we break down what that is and how can we best serve. And when you have a group of adults that care about them, they can be talking to each other. Hey, in my class, he's not like that, or she's not like that, or you know, in PE or in music or in art, we're seeing this and that, and this seems to work, and that doesn't seem to work. What's happening is it's a child being loved. And any parent knows that we try to adapt to our children the best that we can. You know, so there's that piece. And then, of course, there's books. I mean, you can always, and there's so many books that come out every once in a while. Sometimes we'll read a book together about what it means to do this. How does a classical education address this? You know, how does, where are the other larger theoretical frameworks that we're looking at that help out with kids? But I think I'm, I'm the kind of guy that starts with a lot of the mushy stuff. I just, I, I think you have to love kids. Um, and if you do that, you try to understand them where they're at, and you have to create spaces where those conversations can take place, and you're able to look at data and understand what the data is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would hire a group of teachers that recognize the diversity of a Murray County, the different types of students that we're serving. Uh, and one of the things, and you know this as an educator, uh, not every teacher is made for every environment. Like a lot of teachers who might struggle in one environment, I'll tell them, look, try another one. And it doesn't mean that you're bad at teaching. This just may not be your niche. You know, so part of getting a, a school full of good teachers is making sure that they're also in the niche that they most succeed in. I, I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. The only uh, exception to that is that uh, over the years I come across people that are teachers, administrators, whatnot, that are really good people, that really desire to do a good job, but their capacity to do what you said, to actually love children uh, to a point where accountability is a, a appropriate, it's a demonstration of love, uh, then uh, encouragement, uh, rigor, all the things that you need to put into that particular child. Uh, don't you find that it comes... Uh, you have to be you have to be good with yourself you have to be good with your own personal walk before you're able to develop that capacity to give that to kids 100 percent. yeah no i mean yeah uh, in fact i think a, a good adult is reflective so it's not just about how they're affecting that child it's how they're being affected by that child and i think if, a, if, if an adult is reflective then they're able to be willing to change those things i mean you know this the best teachers are never satisfied with their practice like you're often having right. to encourage them like, yeah, I know you didn't get that kid, you know, hey, you know, what, you know, cause they're constantly thinking I could have done this better. I could have done that better. I could have done this better. So I look for reflection, um, quite a bit, um, you know, in Cleveland, that was the 4.1 in the rubric, you know, it's just number one was reflective teachers to me are extremely important, but I agree there, there are people who care deeply about others, but there's something that it's like a raw nerve that certain kids can hit that nerve. But I think you need to talk about that. And so that's why I said it becomes specific. If, if, if there's an adult conversation going on that's honest enough where a teacher could come to me as an administrator, for example, you know, and say, I'm really struggling with Johnny. Like, and I don't know exactly what it is. I care about him, but there's just the way he does things. Well, we have to unpack that. What, what does that mean? You know? um, but, and that, if that person has a heart where they want to serve, then they'll try to tackle that in themselves. And it could be these conversations you're talking about. It could be the environment they've grown up in. It could be the cultural norms in their household. You know, uh, it could be all those things. But I agree. I mean, it's not just the mushy. There's a certain teachers, good teachers. There is a science to it. You can learn to do things well. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to take another break. Uh, welcome. We'll be back to American Steel in a few moments. At 
Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. We know that Jeep owners are one of a kind. Choose from our huge inventory or build your own one of a kind Jeep from the ground up. Stop by today and one of our product specialists will help you customize the Jeep you want. Wrangler, Grand Cherokee, and Grand Wagoneer in the perfect color. Gotta have them options, powertrain, and more. And now, take advantage of the Jeep Wave program. Worry free maintenance at no additional cost. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. Online at ColumbiaCDJR.com. Let's talk custom design jewelry. Did you know Tillis Jewelry in downtown Columbia creates custom design jewelry and has been for over 30 years? From one-of-a-kind engagement rings to wedding bands and so much more. We want each piece to be as unique as you are and create a family heirloom for tomorrow. Call today and make an appointment with one of our designers. And just for calling, you will receive a free 30-minute consultation. Tillis Jewelry, creating custom jewelry proudly in Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the drywall that somehow isn't. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. This is Trip Stoltz, owner and manager of Columbia Ace Hardware. Did you know that Columbia Ace Hardware carries Magnolia Home Paint by Joanna Gaines? Columbia Ace Hardware is the only Magnolia paint dealer in town. Now their premium quality and huge selection of colors will be right in your neighborhood, along with the award-winning service and advice Ace has always provided for your paint projects. Come see us at Columbia Ace Hardware and Power Equipment. We will be glad to help you. This is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Hello, this is John McEwen with McEwen Group Real Estate, located at 17A Public Square in beautiful downtown Columbia. Our family has over 40 years' experience selling farms, residential, recreational, and all types of real estate here in Middle Tennessee. Check us out online at McEwenGroup.com or on Facebook and Instagram at McEwen Group, or give me a call today at 931-628-1749. McEwen Group, land is your legacy. First responders know seconds count when saving lives, and emergency response can often be delayed due to difficulty navigating rural locations, congested subdivisions, mobile home parks, and apartment complexes. The Locator 911 is a unique life-saving bulb. In normal use, a porch light, and when activated by you, a multicolored flashing beacon for first responders to help them find you in the event of an emergency. For more information, stop by your local fire department or visit thelocator911.com. Welcome back to American Steel. We're here with Phil Schwenk and Clayton. Uh, Phil, it's been an amazing 40 minutes. I appreciate, uh, again, your being purposeful and transparent. When you're talking about, uh, you're very passionate about what you do, and I, I personally appreciate that because I'm extremely passionate. Uh, when I go in, I go all in, and I typically go in. When, it's, when it relates to kids and what's best for children, I am all in with that. I was going to ask you about something because it kind of dawned on me. You mentioned... Uh, teachers being caring and so caring and that's the crucial component and if you ask anybody i've been all over conferences and if you ask they'll say well relationship building is the key and then you ask people well why is it so hard for most people to build relationships with kids i don't know uh, we could that's a whole nother segment we could go into but what i was going to say is that 
you know, getting back to that comment about teachers not being that smart, uh, you know, the ACT or they don't cover how much you love or care about kids. There's no questions about that on the ACT. Absolutely. So you could have somebody who may not be a, a stellar college student who wants just to be a teacher simply because they love kids. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sure you've experienced, I've experienced it over over and over again, uh, somebody comes in as a career changer or just barely got out of college, but they end up being the best teacher in your building be, mm-hmm. simply because they're, they care about the kids, they're organized, they're meaningful discussions, and, and they're transparent with children. And as you mentioned before, uh, children are you know children can see when you're authentic and when you're not authentic. And I was going to ask you, because I've, I've experienced this several times before, uh, I've been at several challenging schools, as have you. Mm-hmm. I love those schools. I don't have nothing negative to say about those schools. Agreed. I don't have nothing negative to say about those children or the parents. And we've got some wonderful parents who are very challenging and very colorful. Mm -hmm. We've got amazing children who, for right, wrong, or indifferent, make poor choices. Mm -hmm. uh, And I still love them and do my best to try to help them. And I I feel like you're the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you respond to that when someone just kind of says, oh, yo, you were in Watts. So that must have been something else. (laughs) Yeah, I get that, like, all the time. Well, I mean... (laughs) I guess the advantage we have being in the schools is we get to know these kids. They're not like, you know, caricatures or like a character in a movie. I mean, these these are people. I mean, and you and you get to know them for who they are. They're not a stereotype. You get to see what they love and they don't love and what they like. and They don't like what they're good at and what they're not. So I think educators who are really good educators, they take a certain ownership over a responsibility for those children. They're their children. So when you start talking stuff, you're in effect almost talking about my kids. They're my, I mean, I know I didn't birth them and all that other kind of stuff, but you're talking about my child, and I'm going to defend them in the same way, almost, a, almost like a parent. I'm not their parent, fully aware I'm not their parent. I think parents are the primary teachers of a child. Um, but I'm, I would say that really good teachers fall somewhere in the camp. I mean, they're not the teacher, but they're going to care a lot about that child. Uh, you know, there's so many topics in this country that, you know, when you talk about like violence in schools or, you know, perpetrators and stuff like that. We've proven over and over and over again as educators, we'll jump in front of our kids because we do. We love our kids. Um, and the thing is, is that you're also fully aware, if you're a good teacher, that the child is doing and speaking the best they know how. I think if you understand that, then you can understand. Like, what I've had to tell teachers all the time is that a kid speaks in a way that works somewhere. So it may not work in your classroom, but when they're acting like that, it, it works somewhere because we use what you know, is the language that we've been given. And so if you can understand that, then you step back and you actually get to kind of think through their, their language. But yeah, I get asked that all the time. And frankly, I mean, you could put me anywhere. I don't care if it's inner city, rural, suburban. I mean, kids at their core are, are kids, you know, just some kids have really had to struggle to get to school every day or to live their lives. Uh, while some have had a lot of their needs taken care of. Um, but yeah, no, some of that isn't something like you, I think you may have mentioned. I, I don't, it's not a textbook. Um, I just love kids. And there's, and those are the types of people we should have in front of our, our students. And frankly, if you're a parent, you feel a lot better about your kid going to school if you know that there's a bunch of adults that care deeply about your child. Uh, and I think most of us understand what we do to human beings when we love them. Like we really pay attention to them and we notice who they are and we try to care for them. Um, we, we try to make them feel safe. We want them to learn. I mean, all the natural things that a parent does with their own children. Right. 
I think teachers do that. I mean, of course, we have this professional element where we have to keep somewhat of a distance, you know, recognize that I'm a teacher, that kind of thing. But, but frankly, uh, yeah, no, I've common I've, sense stuff about ethics. Well, of course, yeah, and no. mor- mor- morale and character, sure. and integrity. Yeah, there's inappropriate behavior, and you Correct. need to know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with the child knowing that you care about them. Then you know, no, not and, and kids will pay attention to you. I've had students come in and say, "I can I have a hug?" Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. And I'll call my secretary in or somebody else. <laughs> absolutely, and say, I'm gonna give you a hug yeah. uh, because I'm not gonna not I'm not gonna deprive you of a hug just because some fool is yeah. somewhere uh, you know uh, abusing yeah. his or her authority. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't believe in that at all. But the same token, you know, I tell them I love them straight up. I'll yeah. tell them on the intercom I love you. But yesterday was a was. Not not a good day, so we're not going to the pep rally today. Yeah. Stuff like that, and they love that. They get it, and I think sure. that I think that a lot of adults don't give them credit enough for uh, wanting boundaries and, and wanting uh, discipline that also comes along with love and encouragement. Yeah. It's just part of the process. I mean, they're well, that's how you children. demonstrate love, right? Like the part that I think we've lost in our society is that those who love each other will, dis- especially a child, will discipline them. That's a demonstration of love. Phil, what is your uh, what is your hierarchy look like in, in your school? If this school opens up and you're the principal, yep. do you have a uh, do you have an elementary principal and eventually a middle school principal and a high school, or is it just you and then you have? You usually have one head, okay. and then you may have one, two. I guess if we got big enough, you could have three APs, kind of a thing. Okay, uh, you could. There's some schools have like a dean, so you could have an element around like discipline and those things, uh, and then of course you have all the support cast, you know, uh, specialists and like in the various areas of like. Uh, you know, like uh, special education. Uh, obviously, you have uh, like what we call paraprofessionals, or I think they call them ed assistants here in uh, Tennessee. Um, you know, so it, the hierarchy usually is one head. There might be two or three that kind of fall below that. Uh, and then you have kind of obviously the elements of like academic counseling and those types of spaces. Um, but then you have like teachers, and we have various types of teachers. You know, we have music and art and PE and Latin and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's pretty, it's, it's a fan, it's much smaller. So it feels a lot personal. Like, like when I started teaching in LA, I had rosters of like over 300 kids. So I got used to knowing a lot of kids. So a school this size, even as administrator, I can know the vast majority of the kids, which is a huge advantage when you actually know who the children are. Um, so yeah, the hierarchy is, is me. I'm the kind of the head guy. And then there would be a couple APs and so I was going to ask you, have you had a chance to look around the community to see about potential uh, space? Uh, would you think about buying existing buildings that may be available, or would you think about just constructing a whole new campus? It's yes, 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 yes. So yes, it's, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's, uh, so there are places, like even in today, there, it came up in the broadcast. I mean, people keep telling me, hey, you, have you thought about McDowell? Or have you looked at St. Andrews? Or have you looked at the, uh, what was the other one I heard? Ford, the Ford plant. There's an old. So I'm hearing all that. I mean, obviously, it would come into what's real and what can happen, all those types of things. Um, I'm open to the, the biggest thing that's become very clear to me is it makes most sense to have this school around Columbia. And I know that we're, we're about to conclude uh, this episode of America. American Steel. Y'all talking about transportation this morning, and I don't want to kind of get in. That's a long discussion. Would uh, would your school rely on the transportation that we currently use for our public schools? Well, that would have to be a discussion. Okay. So the nice thing about a charter school is it has flexibility. So right. it could be an agreement with the local district and their buses. It could be we you know, have a fleet of uh, vans. It could be parents that bring their own kids. It's usually a mix of all the above. Like anyone I've ever been, it's always been a mix. And so we just got a few minutes, uh, Phil. So um, 
if if it's approved and the school is ready to open tomorrow, yep. how does the admissions process work? How do parents um, go and apply to be first come first serve? Okay, so it's a public school, so anybody's welcome to come. Anybody, I can't stress it enough. It's not gleaning that anybody. So it's really kind of first come, first serve, and then there's paperwork you fill out that's basically an application for admission. Uh, and then if there's enough seats, all those kids get in. If there's not enough seats, so if you had 300 seats and let's say 400 kids applied, you have to do what's called a public lottery, and it's done in the open. So everybody can come and watch us to make sure that we're not being unfair. And then you just start giving seats as their names come up, and then you start creating a waiting list with that same process. So you have 300 kids that get in, and then there'll be 100 kids that are kind of lined up in the one, two, three, four. So if a seat comes open, they come in. But there's no gleaning process, so anybody is uh, free to come. Well, Mr. Schwenk, we very much enjoyed this time. Thank you for taking the time to be with us here on American Steel. Our podcast is just about being relevant and truthful, uh, trying to help uh, those that listen and and our community around us just to uh, be able to find ways to reinvent themselves in order to be uh, productive citizens and just to... um, you know, help us help wherever we can. We all want to live in a uh, community where we're safe and we're uh, prosperous and find joy and peace. And I want to thank you for the oppor- uh, for coming on to the show today. Uh, and if I can ever be of assistance to you, don't hesitate to call me. Well, I really appreciate you having me. So thank you, and we'll do. <laughs> thank you. This has been a episode of American Steel here on WKOM Radio in Columbia, Tennessee, one hundred one point seven FM.